Welcome to today's episode of Strata Originals. As the name implies, we speak with true originals and we take you to the next level. These are leaders who stand out by the lessons and stories they share to inspire us, entertain us, and teach us. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you don't miss any future episodes. You can also watch the video podcast of these episodes on YouTube at Strata Originals. So fasten your seatbelts, ensure your tray is in the upright position, and prepare for takeoff. Your in-flight host, Leanne Bicaro. That's what I want. <laughs> Welcome to Joni Avram, who is the president of Cause and Effect Marketing. Full disclosure, Joni and I have known each other for a long time. We're good friends. We have a lot of laughs, but we've done some serious business together on cause-related campaigns that have been intense, but a lot of fun and had a lot of success. And so I'm excited to talk to you today, Joni. So welcome. First, I want people to know you a little bit. We always start with an icebreaker. So maybe you could tell us if you could live in any sitcom, which one would it be? Yeah, I, I think the one that came to mind when you suggested this is Frasier. Oh, really? I love the dialogue. Okay. It's so witty. And it's almost like a play. If, you, if you've ever watched the, the sitcom, it's almost like a play. And I find the dialogue and the, the whole, the way they ring, the way they, you know, develop the story and the characters and bring things back to conclusion. It's just amazing, beautiful. I, I, first of all, it's a beautiful set and uh, people, the, the characters and the dialogue is so funny. And that's probably what I'd pick. Just first, tell us a little bit about you and your history, how you started Cause and Effect, and then sort of leap ahead to where we are today and the kinds of things that you're talking about. So I started off my career as a in my education in English. I was always been fascinated by story, and then I went to law school and I learned a lot about how to make an argument and uh, the issues of the day and policy, etc. And I thought that when I was in law school, I never wanted to practice law. I always wanted to work in the court of public opinion. Is what I called it. I, I wanted to take that learning and help people really understand policy, which bring it down the complexity of policy to human, kind of a human level. So I, I was very interested in communications around policy, politics, etc. So I did that for a few years. And then um, like a long time, actually, probably 15, maybe 10 years. And then I went and had a few kids. And when I came back, I said, what do I want to really do? Because I don't want to do what I've already done. I want to do something new and different. I really felt like I wanted to work with people who wanted to change the world and but didn't quite know how. And I felt like I could be a good resource for people who had that sort of big idea, um, but maybe didn't have the support to, to pull it off. So I ended up working in philanthropy, not-for-profit, and uh, corporate C CSR at the time. It was called Corporate Social Responsibility. And, I, you know, I just did a whole lot of, comp I did a whole lot of work around that topic. And then about 2014, I got a call to do a project specific to changing attitudes around sexual assault response. How do you respond to survivor of sexual assault? And it was a fascinating process. I learned so much about what not to do 
how to, you know, how not to reinforce negative attitudes. And we learned a lot in the process. And um, as a result I, sorry, of that, Joni, can I pause here for one minute yeah. to just acknowledge the brilliance of Deb Tomlinson and her team? It's just knowledge flows out of her. So it's hard not to learn with her. Interesting thing about working with people like Deb is that she's so close to the ground and she really understands people. And one of the things that stood out for me in the conversation around, first of all, why are we talking to risk? So maybe just back up. I mean, the whole idea here was we got invited to, to participate in a campaign that was designed to help the public understand how to respond to a sexual assault survivor. When they disclose to you, what should you say? Would you know what to say? And my, the first question people often ask is, why are you talking to those people? And the reason is that most people don't tell because they're afraid they won't be believed. And so what ha ends up happening is that there's this cone of silence that gets built up and people, survivors don't speak and perpetrators um, just do it again and usually up to six times before they're caught. And so to create an environment where people feel like if they speak, they'll be listened to and believed is was super important, is super important. And so we understood that, but she said to me at one point, if you wanna see somebody burst into tears in a good way, just tell them I believe you. And so that became the campaign. Yeah. Yeah. And then maybe you- I was in the car driving to work and I was just like, <laughs> that's the campaign. I believe you. Like, that's it. Those, and like, is it that simple? Could it be that simple? Because never in my lifetime has a ca campaign just sort of presented itself and said, yeah, that's me. That's, that's what it is, right? Just call it exactly what it is. And, and she was so right. And it was also the first time I've ever presented anything to a client and had the entire table crying, right? Well, and to be clear, the, the majority of the success of the campaign, other than the strategy, come, came down to the creative and the quality of the creative, which, is, which was you. Thank you. Came to that conclusion or came to that creative. Yeah. And, and you know, I don't want to take away time from you, right? You were just saying no one knows to say those three simple words, but they've, they say it in different words and it's the most important thing to say. And, and it was the statement that you said, which was what Deb said, which is just, if you want to see somebody burst into tears, just say, I believe you. And I thought, well, I want to see people burst into tears on mass so that they remember that's the, the response. And then we had to make it memorable. So how do we show that? How do we show that in 1D in a poster? And then how do we show it in 3D so that we're catching people's memories of when they were kids and taking them back to that safe place when, when they mostly everyone felt safe when they're hanging out with their best friend, when they're three and four years old, 
And then magically, all of a sudden we had, I believed you when you said we'd be best friends forever. And I believe you now. And I think that was the launching part. That was what made Deb and everybody cry at the table. I get choked up just talking about it right now. So I think, you know, when you have support and intelligence and smarts and knowledge around something and you work together as a team, I think it's, and everybody is on the same page with a, a socially positive campaign. I do know what people tell, have told me is that it's because it was non-threatening because it didn't present anything uncomfortable it presented a very positive message and people engaged with it because it, because of that. It was an easy campaign for people to say yes to. Yeah. Now, as a background, like a lot of times what people end up doing when they try to change people's attitudes about a certain issue is that they tend to reinforce the myth. And so, for instance, the, one of the myths that exists around this topic was that um, uh, people don't believe because, you know, because survivors are more likely to make it up. But the fact is that's not the case. And rather than going there and saying, most survivors tell the truth, that would just reinforce the, the negative connotation that there is that whole question around this topic. And so going in a completely different direction and showing people what it looked like and how to do it and bringing them into the story, <clears throat> showing these positive role models was really key to helping change attitudes because Role modeling, we learn by watching others and role modeling just helps us do the same. It becomes an easy thing to emulate because I see it, I see you doing it, you look like me, that's not that hard, Let's, I can do it too. Um, so it's something as simple as that that is really key to helping people understand social change. It was so successful that in the last year, or I guess it was the extra year, we had to launch one line, which was the Alberta's sexual violence line um, because the offices and, and the clinics were getting overwhelmed. So let's well, talk about I'm, that a little bit. Yeah, I'm really interested in, so yesterday I was chatting with someone who's a social worker and they're t dealing with family violence issues in Edmonton. And she said, you know, we've been grappling with this issue of family violence and how to prevent family violence for years. We understand the research. We know, we know what it says. We just never knew how to apply it. But when you came, when our agency came to the table and showed them what it could look like, and I can send you some, some images, um, the beautiful thing is it makes it all, it all, it makes it all make sense. But there are a lot of organizations, agencies, people who are trying to make change in the world who don't actually know how to do it well, and sometimes make decisions that actually either don't work or do more harm than good. And so, so one of my goals... Sorry, can I just, I wanna stop you there because I have to read this quote that you said to me that is gonna set up what you're gonna say next, I know it. So we need a model of how to do social communications well. People are well-meaning, but sometimes the well-meaning people cause harm. So why don't, cause is that, cause you were going there next, right? Yeah, it's not only people are frustrated because they can't quite get to that place where they feel like they're making an impact, but then there are people who go out and try to make an impact and it backfires. 
and the, and it's this i'm trying to sound a bit of an alarm bell to say there <clears throat> we have to be aware of how easily it is to reinforce bad behavior by a lot of what we're doing socially in social campaigns and if we only knew a few specific methods like a few simple steps for doing social change well we could literally change the world in a really like not in a and not in a long term in a short term kind of way and so yes i'm i'm leading a bit of a parade to help get people who are engaged in this conversation to be more aware of how to do it well can you tell the story um just so that everyone has a visual and an example um, not to call anybody out, but just so they understand the UK project on suicide. Yeah, a few years ago, an agency in the UK installed 84, 84 life-size male statues on the ledge of a building in downtown London, a very prominent building, high rise. And these 84 statues were intended to represent the 84 men on average per week who committed suicide in in the UK. They were dressed in real clothes that flapped in the wind when, you know, through the day, they literally stopped traffic down below, because you can imagine what a sight. And they got the attention of new newsrooms across the world. I think they generated like a, a reach, a media reach of over 2 billion, um, hundreds of millions of Twitter impressions in, in increased calls to local uh, help seeking agency or help lines. Um, and by all those measures would appear to be a success. However, about a year and a half later, they measured again and they found that the number of suicides per week had jumped to 94. And so what these people, what the agency and the people who were involved in the campaign didn't realize is that bringing attention to the common incidents of suicide actually increases incidents. Like when it's called suicide contagion, and we actually know that this is a real thing. And for instance, when Robin Williams died, he, he committed suicide as well. And right after that, the number of middle-aged men who committed suicide went up by 10%. So because we tend to be influenced by the behavior of others, especially people like us, um, the more we talk about how it happened, why it happened, when it happened, who it happened to, the natural response is to think, oh, well, I'm in that situation. Maybe, maybe it's time for me to do the same, especially if you're in that space of thinking about it knowing others are doing it commonly is more likely to make you do the same. And that's the sad thing about it. So rather than doing those, rather than calling attention to how many people are committing suicide, a much better way to do it is to call attention to the people who sought help and recovered. Two reasons for that. One is it gives me a sense that it's possible. Like you called somebody, you got help, you're living a better life. Maybe I can do that too. Now, these stories give us hope, but they're also elevating stories. They, they're, they're stories that actually give us a sense of positive emotion that builds up our ability to think differently about our problems, be more creative, be more willing to reach out to others for help. So there's a lot of reasons why 
that's a good example of how flipping the, the conversation, flipping the script and talking about what's working and people, stories of success rather than these stories of failure are the right way to go. Yeah, exactly. Because there's time after time after time of say no to drugs, all incidences, well-meaning, but at the end of it have increased incidences of that behavior they're trying to stop, right? Uh, well, some of the, the, the just say no to drugs for sure, we know did have an impact in, ter in terms of when you tell kids to just to say no to drugs, the early campaign that was called Just Say No actually was more like kids were more likely to try drugs than if they didn't participate in the campaign. But there are some other campaigns like like the, the one, uh, one successful campaign that did do the job was um, the one around designated drivers. Right. And so designating drivers was not a thing way back in the 80s. And uh, somebody died, like a fairly prominent uh, news reporter died and, by drunk driver. And Hollywood decided, <clears throat> this is it, we're doing something about this topic. And they actually brought um, the subject of a designated driver into the scripts of very prominent sitcoms like Cheers and LA Law and those, those kinds of shows. And within four years, the concept of designated driver had taken hold and the number of people who died by drunk driver had gone down. So there are examples of ways that you do the right thing, that there are, are people who understand how to change behavior and social kind of social norms, but then there are others who don't seem to know. And that's why we're trying to close that gap. One thing that stands out in my mind, um, when there was some people that we we met with um, after the first year of the campaign, which really proved like we punched way above our weight as far as media and um, give not just earned media, but media that was donated. And one question that we were asked at one of the strategic meetings was, why aren't we talking to the perpetrators? Deb. Deb had a good answer to that. And she said, because they're less likely to listen. And that's true, right? Um, if you speak to the perpetrator, first of all, you know, people tend to get defensive or they say, oh, that's not me. That's yeah. somebody else, right? They yeah. don't associate with the message. Um, and also they can, you know, dig in their heels and, and justify. And so speaking to that audience isn't really useful, but when you speak to the responder, um, you create an environment where people are more likely to speak up and perpetrators are less likely to get away with it. And so that really was the, that was really the cause and effect, the, the lever of change that she identified as being the right one. And, um, I think there are other organizations who, who've understood that as well. Like we know there are other campaigns that have that are about starting by believing, but they don't go about it the same way. They speak to the head. So they kind of say, you need to start by believing, you need to do it this way, stand with survivors and write a petition. And, you know, they, they, they kind of yell at you to do a different, to do things differently, but they don't show you what it looks like and they don't create okay. an emotional connection to the idea so that you can repeat it. 
And the beautiful thing about creating emotion in a story is that emotion stays with you. When you are triggered by a positive or negative emotion, it actually becomes part of your physical like response. So it becomes a marker in your body. So yes. when you and you feel it, you it, it kind of gives you a signal to go in one direction, which is an automatic response. So you don't have to think hard about it. You can um, you can refeel emotions that cause you to do something positive. It doesn't involve a lot of hard work. I think that's one of the big things about social change that people misunderstand is that we have this notion that it's going to take a long time and you're going to have to convince people and you're going to have to shame them or you're going to have to train them and retrain them. And actually, no, you just have to understand how the brain works and how our, how our emotions are typically what we lead with. And so if you, if you communicate to the emotional side of our brains in the right way, in this positive way, in a way that makes us think differently and feel differently, um, then we'll behave differently. But feeling first and then thinking and then acting. We think it's thinking and then acting. It's not. It's not at all. No. Well, and you know, I'm yay about that because everything I do is about emotion, right? And so it's, it's kind of why we really gelled because I'm the emotional person and making sure that we provide, no matter what the medium is, that emotion that people can latch onto. And, and I think even before we had the creative finished, um, the amazing thing, and I, listen, I'm not like rah, rah, like it's the best campaign in the world, even though I do think it is, but um, when you're talking to people to get them on board, because, you know, when you're doing commercials, like TV commercials and, you know, you're booking um, locations and getting actors and things like that, the number of people who, A, when you tell them about the campaign, start to cry, men, grown men, uh, women, boys, like crazy amounts of people, you know that you're having an impact even without having the emotion but when you're talking to the masses you want to make sure you hit on that emotion to get their attention because we have so many messages come at us but it's amazing to me because i've never had another campaign like it the number of people outside of the province where it was commissioned support the campaign the people who owned venues were donating venues um you know when we set off fire alarms the fire department would come and be ready you know they were going to find us and then they find out what the campaign is and they're like it's okay don't worry about it i mean what would you say to whether people are in creative agencies or doing strategy around and it's really about cause related i mean we're not talking commercial purposes and you know, what I like to call filming chicken bums and things. It's, it's about the cause related. I know you think that's funny, but it's just so true. Um, the cause related social movement, the, the important messages. Well, I, I think the typical answer I give is like, stop raising awareness. Stop thinking that raising awareness, first of all, is the golden ticket that you need to change for social change, because it's not. In fact, it often backfires and does more harm than good, like I've talked about. Family violence campaigns 
that show graphic images of people in violent situations typically increase incidents. If your kid goes to a school with an anti-bullying campaign, they're more likely to be bullied than if they go to school without one. Diversity and inclusion efforts that try to get people aware of their biases actually reinforce and amplify those biases. And this has been, you know, this has been proven from research for almost for almost 100 years, like back to the 1930s, they've been studying diversity and inclusion. Um, the reason people keep doing this is not because these programs work. They, they do it because, uh, because it makes them look good, and it makes them less likely to be sued. Which is a sad reason to do something, but but um, you know I've seen people bang this drum before. Like uh, there are researchers, just Google H Harvard Business Review and and Google the term diversity inclusion why it doesn't work. Sexual harassment training why it doesn't work, um, and you'll find the same answer. It's all about raising awareness is not the key. I think the reason though that researchers haven't yet got people to pay attention to this is that they haven't provided. A an alternative. They haven't shown them what the alternative, the other thing could look like. And that's what I'm doing. I'm saying, stop doing this and start doing this because I can show you that this works. I can show you what it looks like. And I can show you how, what kind of impact it has on the audience because we've measured. Part, part, the other reason that um, I think people keep going down the, the wrong path is that they, they make, they call it making a difference. We're making a difference. Well, how do you know you're making a difference? Are you actually measuring? Are you, are you checking? Because if you don't, then you don't know and you can actually be doing harm. Yeah. Oh, I'm interested in what you said about diversity and inclusion, because I had um, a very prominent lawyer friend client say the exact same thing you just said. As long as we keep talking about diversity and inclusion, we're going to be a diverse and uninclusive world. Are we just showing? It's uh, going beyond that, actually, to showing how common our values are, common our goals are. Like we did a research, we did a little research study about a year and a half ago. Um, and we taught, we asked our Canadians across Canada uh, to, to kind of do this little survey on values. And it, it's, it's a, it's a survey that's been delivered around the world for decades. And we found that like our values as Canadians are very similar right across regions. And so this sense that we have a lot of common values, common goals, common reasons why we want to be Canadian or whatever the term is, um, make us feel united, make us feel like we're all connected and we're all moving in the same direction. So let's focus on what makes us similar, what are our similarities ra rather than our differences. Start there. And then once you have an established sense of commonality and common goals and sort of like we're all on the same team, then you can say, okay, where can we get better? Where, how do we bring in some people who might not, who might be disadvantaged or how do we deal with some gaps that are out there? But rather than treating people as, you know, being on separate teams where, you know, you're over here and I'm over here and we, we're fighting with each other need to make everyone feel like we are united and connected and we all want the same thing so how do we how do we get there together a while ago i worked with a, a friend who was selling selling a business in a small community a rural community and she was selling it to a um 
to a refugee, a, a Syrian refugee, a, a young male Syrian refugee. And uh, he had lived in this, he'd worked in the business for a couple of years. But when word got out that he was looking to buy it, there were some rumblings. And she, and the, the assumption was that, you know, people weren't too open to this new arrangement. And the assumption was, you know, they're, they're reacting because of racism. And I said, okay, well, let's explore that. Let's consider how we can talk about this in a way that's going to make people feel, uh, bring them around. And so the conversation said, let's downplay the fact that he's a, he's, an, he's a refugee and let's play out the fact that he's lived in this small town for a long time. He loves this business. He loves the town. He wants it to thrive. He loves this, um, the, the contributors to the business because they were all local. And let's talk about that. And when that became the story, everybody was super behind him. And because, and so the story, it, you know, it's really about amplifying what we have in common, yeah. how we all are kind of underneath the surface. We all have very similar goals and desires. When you focus on that, people feel like they're on the same team and they are more inclined to cooperate and trust. It's as simple as that. So again, because I would have had a very visceral reaction to hearing what your friend told you about the reaction of the people in the town. And the other issue I have is with the word refugee, right? Like oh. it's, it's, it's a negative word. Like it just, I, I wish we could get rid of it out of our vocabulary, period. It's not simple to change the way we think about sort of social change and to help people understand that we all have the, a common goal for something, but the message can be so simple. The message can be so simple. It comes down to a couple of things. One thing that I've come to believe, and I still work at, you know, myself, is starting from a place of what's working. It's called this notion of appreciative inquiry. We have this tendency in our world to focus on the negative. You know, news stories, social feeds, it's all about, oh my goodness, like the world is falling and et cetera, et cetera. And that gets people to click. It does. We are wired to be um, aware of where the risks are. And so these negative stories work to get us to click. However, that it comes at a price and a really big price. It creates what some researchers have called a negativity bias. And so we have, we live in this world of negativity, which makes us think the world is scarier than it actually is. And people are worse than they actually are. And so the solution is to focus on progress, to focus on people doing the right thing, to focus on how the world is getting better. Because when you do that, if you focus on the negative, people become exhausted. We become problems that need to be solved and people who need to be fixed. On the other hand, if you say, look, we got some good things to work with here. Then I become engaged. I feel confident. I feel encouraged. I feel like I want to jump in and get things better, but I have to feel like I've got a place to start. And if you would give me some sense of encouragement that we're on the, you know, we have something to work with. We we're um, not, we're good people getting better. Um, that's a different message that creates a completely different environment where people are willing to weigh in. But otherwise, I'm going to be cynical. I'm going to be mistrusting. I'm going to be apathetic because I just can't take anymore. Um, but the other thing about this whole conversation is this kind of starts with trust 
trust not as a kind of a vague concept, but as something that you do first. So as a communicator, the first thing I have to do is trust my audience. I have to trust that these people are going to be open to this message and that they actually want to do what's right. And if you start from there and you you communicate to this audience in that way, you're going to create a very different response than if you start from the point of believing that people are bad and they need to be shamed and doing the right thing. Well, shame is a negative emotion that makes me feel, you know, dehumanized and probably disengage. And I'm going to become resistant to your message. But if you give me a positive message and you call me up, you know, there's a notion of the Pygmalion effect. There's this idea that we, we rise to the level that people have of us. So if you think I'm a great something, cook, teacher, student, whatever it is, we know that students rise to the level that their teachers have of them. If they have good expectations of them, they meet those expectations. If they have low expectations, they meet those expectations. Yep. So we have, I think, a responsibility as communicators to stop the negativity, get people more aligned with a positive message of progress and hope, and to start to trust the people that we're communicating about and for. That um, Because I know people want to do what's right, and they are basically good, willing participants in the process. Ladies and gentlemen, the captain has turned off the Don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you don't miss any future episodes. Stay tuned for part two.